0: Thanks, Jamie. I want to pray, and then we'll begin. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the reading of your word. God, we thank you uh, for this time now that we can come, and we can gather, and we can study your word. and God, and I pray that as we, we read the book of Daniel, and we hear this message that you have for us, God, that you'd be greatly glorified. God, help us to understand that we are sinful, and that we are in need of a Savior. And you have sent your son Jesus to be that Savior. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss the, uh, the, the children who are going to junior church. So if you're doing that, let you go ahead and line up over here on the door. Jamie was kind enough to read and help spare my voice a little. Before we jump into Daniel, I I just want to remind us just how the Bible starts. Um, We began in Genesis, and God uh, creates the world. He speaks all of creation, uh, and he makes man in his own image. And he places him in a garden, um, and he gives him rule and dominion over all creation. And he blesses him. And this is kind of a microcosm of God's kingdom. We have God's people in God's place under god's rule and uh and we see that it's existing it's good it's wonderful but then we see very quickly that man sins man rejects god and because of that no longer can man be in the very presence of god and experience god's blessing and his rule but if we skip to the end of the book uh, to the book of revelation in the last couple chapters you ever do that when you're reading a book? You're like, read the intro, and you're like, all right, how does it end? Do I want to keep going? And so if we were to do that, and we come to the very last two chapters, we see that, well, once again, God has a people. It's a much larger group of people, and they have a place. It's, a whole he- it's, a, it's the new earth, and they're all underneath his rule experiencing his blessing. And so God has brought about his kingdom where people now dwell in it. But how does God do this? How is it that a good and righteous God can bring sinful people into his presence for all of eternity? Can he do that and still be good? And today in Daniel, as we're in Daniel 9, we will see how this is possible. The goal is to get through the whole chapter, uh, but Jamie read only the first 19 verses in case we don't make it through the whole part. Uh, But if we do, we will continue reading from there. So we're going to begin, largely we're going to be looking at Daniel's prayer today and so we're going to look at what did Daniel pray in verse 2 we read Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem namely 70 years so Jeremiah is an old testament prophet one who has been inspired by God to write God's word and he prophesied right up until the destruction of Jerusalem, really the beginning of Daniel. And so Daniel is reading Jeremiah. He's reading the inspired Word of God, one of the books of the Bible that are in our Bible. And so in essence, what is, what is Daniel doing? He's reading, the, he's reading the Bible, right? This is what he's doing. He's reading the Old Testament at this moment, and he reads, God is going to send us into Babylon for 70 years. Most likely he read jeremiah chapter 25 and let me read just verses 8 9 and 11 therefore thus says the lord of hosts because you have not obeyed my words behold i will send for all the tribes of the north declares the lord and for nebuchadnezzar the king of babylon my servant and i will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations i will devote them to destruction and make them a whore a hissing and everlasting desolation This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. He's reading this, uh, well, it's supposed to last for 70 years. And of course, if you read that, you might then say, well, what happens at the end of 70 years? Well, in Jeremiah 29.10, he actually answers that. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah, or Daniel's reading Jeremiah. We're going to go into captivity for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God's going to release us from exile. No longer we'll be in Babylon, although now Persia, and we will be released to go back to Jerusalem. Well, when is Daniel, when does this take place? When is Daniel 9? In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Now, Darius is either another name for King Cyrus or he rules, um, in a a sense, as a representative of Cyrus. So that's how we understand who this Darius figure is. Because after Babylon comes the Persian Empire, which Cyrus is the ruler of. So either Darius is Cyrus, or he's a representative of his rule. And so we're writing, or Daniel's writing, in 539-538. This is the first year of Darius or Cyrus. Um, and Daniel's praying because of what he's read in God's Word. He's praying for God to do what he actually said he would do. So I just want to take a moment and just speak on prayer. Um, it's not all about prayer, uh, but I think we should just say a few things. This prayer from Daniel that comes out of God's Word reveals his faith and trust in God. Hope you see it. This prayer that comes from God's word reveals Daniel's faith and trust in God. You see, the way we respond to God's word reveals whether or not we have faith in God. The way we respond to his word. So I just want to hang on to that truth as we go through this message. The way we respond to God's word reveals whether we have or do not have faith in God. And one of the best ways to respond to God's word is what? It's through prayer is to come to God and say, God, do exactly what you have said. I mean, think about it. Think about the way we're called to pray. We ask for forgiveness, right? Why? Because God says he will forgive us. In 1 John 1, 9, if anyone confesses uh, his sins and and asks for forgiveness, God will do what? Forgive them. We ask for comfort, right? Why do we ask for comfort? Well, in uh, corinthians forgot what it's called Saint corinthians chapter one verses three and four god says i am the god of all comfort who comforts you in any affliction so why do we do that god says he'll comfort us we ask for god to establish his kingdom why because in matthew 6 when god is teaching his disciples how to pray he says pray that god will establish his kingdom thy kingdom come and that's what jesus came to do right he comes preaching the kingdom of god is at hand so one of the best things we can do in response to God's word is pray for God to do what He said He would do. And just to, to make another note about prayer meeting, I' encourage you to come to prayer meeting. Come there is exciting time. You might say, really prayer exciting? Yes, it's exciting, because we're coming. We're learning just more and more how to trust in God, how to pray back the words of God, how to trust that He will help us as a church to grow, to, to grow in our knowledge of the word, to share the gospel that we can stand firm in this culture proclaiming the gospel that we'll pray for our missionaries in other parts of the world that we pray for our president and, and the state and, and where we live and so i encourage you to come and you might say well i never really know what to pray have you ever felt like that guess what you can always pick up god's word and you can pray god's word that's what daniel does he reads god's word well, in 70 years you're going to come god Release us. God, give us mercy. Send us out. You said you would do it, so now I'm asking you to be faithful to your very words and do what you said you would do. That is what Daniel is doing. And so let's look at the content of this prayer, because it's largely a confession to God. It's really what he's doing. He's confessing to God. So let's look at the confession, and then we'll look at how he describes God. Daniel confesses the sins of God's people. Notice, verses 8 and 15, he says, we have sinned. In verse uh, 15, he says, we've done wickedly. In verse 9, he says, we have rebelled against you. Okay, so so Israel's sinned, they've rebelled, they've done wickedly. But how? How have they done this? What specifically have they done? Look at verse 5. They have turned aside from your commandments and rules verse 6 we have not listened to your servants meaning jeremiah meaning other prophets that god has sent them he sent men there to, to share the god's word and say repent repent turn back to god and israel continually said no 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 we don't want to Verse 10, they have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11, we've transgressed your law. We've refused to obey your voice. Verse 14, not obeyed his voice. So what have they done? They've sinned by rejecting God's written and spoken word. Whether it's it's written for them, like, like the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or the the spoken word, like when Jeremiah came or Isaiah, they've rejected it. Now notice it's not an accident either. Like Daniel's not, he doesn't say, you know, God, we, we didn't really mean to do this. <laughs> it was an accident. We we just forgot. No, not obeyed, not listened, turned aside, refused to obey. I just want you to think about. Many of you have been parents. Many of you are parents. Uh, I guess if you've ever been a parent, you are a parent. Uh, but uh, if you have a child and you tell them to do something and they turn away from you and they, they do the opposite thing that you told them to do, what are they doing? They're rebelling against you, against your authority. They're saying, you know what? I don't care. I don't want to do that. I'm going to determine what I want to do. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah. Yeah, that's why god gives us kids he's like i want you to know what it feels like to have people made in your image who don't do what you say um remember our response to god's word reveals whether or not we have faith in god and so what do we know about israel largely they don't have faith in god do they they've rejected the written and the spoken word and, and who Who's committed this? Well, Daniel tells us. Verse 8, he refers to the leaders, the kings, the princes, the fathers. Verse 11, he says, all of Israel. We've all done this. And then what's incredible, I think, through this prayer, and I don't think I would have prayed this way, um, but I'm glad Daniel did. He includes the word we and us throughout the entire prayer. He includes himself. Daniel's not sitting there going, God, will you forgive us these people over here? Like, you know, the ones who have broken your law? I mean, not like me. I mean, Daniel doesn't pray like that. Do you ever find that you kind of pray like that? But Daniel includes himself, and he's saying, look, we, we've transgressed your law. Daniel knows that he's sinful. Daniel knows he's not righteous. Daniel knows he's not perfect. While we have a few excerpts from his life, they look good, right? I mean, I I think if we took some snapshots of all of our lives, we could make it look like we look pretty good but in reality we know that we have struggles in our heart but to be loving to be patient to be kind to be gentle to share the gospel to be obedient to god's word and so here daniel confesses his sin of disobeying the word of god just as much as the rest of israel now what we need to realize here is that what daniel is writing about a specific people in a specific time in history is also reflective of humanity so he's not So while this is true of Israel, it's also true of everyone who lives. We've all rejected God and His Word. I want you to think about it. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, back to Adam and Eve, they're made in God's image, they're placed in the Garden, they can do anything they want. Isn't that awesome? One prohibition. Don't eat from that tree. And it's like God told a kid, don't touch something. What happens when you tell a kid, don't touch something? You just you got to touch it, right? So what does Adam and Eve do? Okay, we know we can do everything, but really want that fruit. So they go and they take that fruit. And because of that, they sin. What they said is, God, we understand that you think you have all authority and you think you should be able to tell us what to do. But in actuality, we reject your authority. We're now going to determine what is right and wrong. That's what Adam and Eve did. And isn't that what we do as well? Think about how we manipulate God's word, even as Christians, to justify what we want to do. You ever get angry? You ever get angry? Do you know someone who gets angry? We'll, we'll say it that way. <laughs> yes, I know someone. And You ever get angry, and you're just harsh, and you lash out at someone? And you know it's not right, but, but the person... I mean, they've either done something many, many times. Maybe they cut you off in traffic. Maybe they did something to hurt you or to hurt someone that you love. And so you lash out. You get angry with them. You ever done something like that? And then someone says, man, you're sinning. And you say, no, I'm not. Did you not see what that person did to me? And you say, but God tells us not to be angry. Yeah, but did you not see what they did? And you see how we begin, we can justify our sins because of what others have done to us. We're good at excusing our actions while at the same, line, at the same time condemning others. We do this so well. Because we say, well, I, I get that, maybe anger's not right, but God's Word certainly doesn't apply to this situation because of what that person has done to me. And we've all done that, right? Right? We all justify our sinful actions because we've been sinned against from someone else. And what we do there is we actually become idolaters. We begin to worship something other than God, namely ourselves. We say, rather than worship God and believe in His authority, we're actually, let, let's worship ourselves and believe that we have the right to determine what is right and wrong. think about what what paul says in romans 1 paul says in romans 1 we suppress the truth and then in romans 1 verses 24 and 25 you just write this down i would just read this whole chapter later but romans 1 it says therefore god gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see what he said? Rather than worshiping the Creator, we worship creation. What do we, what do we become? We become idolaters. When we reject God's word, we become idolaters. We're saying, God, you know what? I reject your authority, I reject your righteousness. I have the right and authority to determine what is wrong and what is right. I don't need you to tell me how to do that. And so rather than coming before God and worshiping Him, we make ourselves to be God. And thus now, we've created we've committed idolatry. And actually, if we were to go back to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 6 and 7, which you can read later, he actually says that we've committed idolatry. We've gone after other gods by rejecting the Word of God. To reject God's Word is to reject God. It's to commit idolatry. So I just want you to think. How are you responding to God's Word? I just want you to think through that. How are you, for one, coming to God's Word? How are you prioritizing God's Word? And how are you responding to God's Word? You might just say, well, I don't really read it at all. I don't really respond to it much. You might say, well, I'm only in it once in a while. Or or maybe you're in it quite a bit. But I want you to think, how are you responding to the Word? Are you more more focused on others? Are you more focused on just checking the box, left to right, top to bottom, I'm done, I read my chapter and I'm done for the day? are you asking for the truths of god's word to be made a reality in your life we all commit idolatry we all struggle with this even christians as we become forgiven by god we still struggle with following the word of god with with worshiping creation instead i just want to take a moment before we begin. i just want us to pause i just want us to pray and i just want you to consider how you're responding to god's word if you are led at all by the spirit to confess confess how you have been responding or or not been responding at all Um, let's just take a moment and i'll pray and we'll keep going Father, we just, we thank you for your word. Your inspired word. Your fully authoritative word. God, we thank you that you've given it to us that we would know you. We would understand what you've done for us through Jesus and that we would understand that we are sinful and that we need your grace and mercy. And God, I know that I at times do not respond to your word well. Either I ignore it, I reject it, I forget it, God, I ask for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we as a church would ask for forgiveness for for not seeking you in your word at all times like we should. I just pray. I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word, a desire for your word, that we would know it, that we would love it, that we would continue to read and be in it, that we'd be shaped by it, and that we would respond the way you have called us to. God, may today as we continue to read your word, may it bring about the full purpose that you have for it today in our lives. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's turn. We see what he confesses to God. But now, let's just look at how he describes God in this text. And I want you to notice, there's a huge difference between the way Daniel describes us and the way he describes God. Verse 4, God is great and awesome and faithful. Isn't that awesome? That's how he describes God. And I get the word faithful because he says, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's faithful to do what he said he would do. He keeps steadfast love. He is faithful. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. He said, If they will follow him, he will bless them. And if they Will, if they reject Him, if they disobey them, they will experience His curses. And guess what? God is faithful to what He has said He will do. He always does what He says He will do. That's why we can pray His words. He's faithful to always do what He has said. All throughout God's Word, we see that He's faithful to God's people. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 13, He says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. So we're not going to look at it. I think it's referenced in your your bulletin, but Deuteronomy 28 verses 64 and 68. Now all of Deuteronomy 28 contains curses and blessings, mostly curses. And in 64 through 68, there's this description of what will happen if they disobey God. And he talks about, I will send you to other lands. I will put you in exile in other places. God is been faithful to his word he said if you reject me this is what i will do and yet he was steadfast and he was patient and he was faithful to his people for so long and then he still remains faithful as he now brings the curses upon them that he said he would do if they do not obey them and of course the reason for the curses is that they would realize that they have sinned repent of their sin and turn back to god verse 7 we see god is Righteous. And notice it says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. He owns it. He possesses righteousness. Everything he does is right. Now, I just want you to think about it. Daniel's pretty much just attributed the exile to God. I mean, it's because of their sins, but the reason they went is because God sent them. And that's what happens in Daniel 1. We read, God gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does Daniel call God? righteous he's not cursing god you brought us into this land you fell he says no you're faithful and you're righteous even when they've experienced this exile he says you are faithful you have done nothing wrong i just want to pause now here if we believe god's word if we believe god's word then we see that we are sinful and god is perfect and holy it's clearly what we see in this passage Daniel's confessing his sins and the sins of the people to a very holy God. And because we're sinful, because, meaning we've offended God, we deserve punishment. The righteous thing for God to do is to punish sinful people, right? If we offend the holy and righteous judge, what should the holy and righteous judge do? He should sentence judgment. We know that. If we have a judge here on earth and a criminal comes before him and he doesn't let him off, is he a good judge? now he's a bad judge here we have a good righteous awesome faithful judge what will he do if sinners come before him he must judge them He must judge them romans 6 23 says the wages of sin is death we deserve death but not just any death not just the death of our bodies We deserve an eternal type of dying. A dying that never seems to cease. A a suffering, what the Bible calls hell, of eternal suffering. And so if we were just to stop right here, or if this was the only picture that we had, we might say, there doesn't seem to be any hope. But God's Word doesn't stop here. Verse 9, God is merciful and forgiving. And just as righteousness belongs to God, we're told that mercy belongs to God. It's strange, I think it's strange, how many people today, and you've heard them, you've talked to them, you might be one of them, and and they will say, man, the God of the Old Testament is so wrathful. He's so mean and angry. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? What's Daniel's view of God? A guy who's actually gone through the judgment of God by going into exile. God, you are good. You are great. You are awesome. You are faithful. You are righteous. You are merciful. You are forgiving. I kind of think these people who think God is just some angry God don't actually read the Bible. So let's not listen to them and allow them to affect the way we read the Bible, but let's realize that when we come to God's Word, that's where we gain an accurate understanding of who God is. And when we come here, we see He's good, He's righteous, He's holy, He's faithful, He's awesome, and He's merciful, and He's forgiving. And that's the whole point. This is why Daniel prays. He's merciful and he's forgiving. So let's turn to the purpose of Daniel's prayer. Verse 16 Turn away your wrath and anger, God. That's what he wants. Turn away wrath and anger. And if he's going to turn that away, what does does he want? Verse 18 Have mercy. Oh oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 17, um, Please for mercy. He wants mercy. Turn away your wrath. Bring us back to the land. Bring us back to Jerusalem. Bless us. And on what basis does Daniel ask this? Is it one of those foxhole prayers? You've all heard there's no atheist in the foxhole. Kind of in the foxhole, there's firing. Uh, bullets are going by everywhere. What does he say? God, if you get me out of this, I'll become a pastor. God, if you get me out of this, I'll memorize your whole Bible. I'll never sin again. I'll never curse again. Is that what Daniel's saying? God, if you get us out of here, man, we're, we're going to be on your team now. We'll be really good for you. No. He doesn't say anything about that. He says... Verse 18, not on our righteousness, but your mercy. He says, we have no righteousness. Save us for your mercy. And he says, verse 19, for your glory. That's what he says, for your glory. So you would be made known. God is always faithful to himself. God is always faithful to his glory. Everything He does is about revealing His glory. In the Bible, we see, and this is a good truth, if, if you don't know this, we see this truth. God has chosen to reveal His glory by giving mercy. We see that from cover to cover. God chooses to reveal His glory by giving mercy. We see it all throughout the Bible. But now, at Daniel's Prayer, we're right back where we started, right? How can a sinful unrighteous unholy people come back into the presence of god how can we do that how can god give mercy and that's actually where now we're going to move into the answer uh, that daniel or that god's going to give daniel so i'm going to read verses 20 through 27 you don't have to stand this time but if you want you can verse 20 while i was speaking For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering." And on the wing wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. So God responds to Daniel's prayer by sending an angel, Gabriel. And notice when he comes, verse 20. While I was still speaking. Verse 21. While I was speaking. Isn't that awesome? Daniel's not even done praying. And the answer's there bam isn't that cool don't you wish that that happened all the time god really use a new car bam new car it'd just be kind of fun if that's how it always worked what we see is that god hears daniel and he answers him right away now is that because daniel's really righteous and so if we pray like daniel we'll always get our prayers right away is it No, we know that's not true. In fact, in Daniel 10, we're going to see that uh, an is going to come again, and he's going to say, it took me 21 days to get here. So we know he doesn't always come right away. The point is not how fast he comes, although that's really amazing right here. The point is God always hears our prayers. He loves to hear our prayers. He's like a father who delights in in the voices of his children, and he loves to hear their prayers, and he will answer them. He loves to answer the prayers. So if you're here, rest assured, God will answer your prayers. Now, if you're here and you say, look, I don't think God ever, ever answers my prayer. I might say, well, how are you praying? Do you ever pray scripture? Does your prayers reflect scripture? Do you ask the things that God has told us to ask for? Or are you asking for things that maybe he hasn't told you? Are you asking for things that advance his kingdom or simply advance your kingdom? There might be reasons by it, but what we do know is that God loves to answer prayer. Here we have an example of that. And in verse 22, Gabriel says, I've come to give you insight and understanding. Of what? What's he going to give him insight and understanding of? Well, what is Daniel crying out for? We want mercy. And so the angel comes, and he's now going to explain, I'm going to show you how God is going to have mercy and it's so much greater than what you think, Daniel. It's not about going back to a land, to Jerusalem, to a temple. That's not ultimately the hope, Daniel. There's something much greater that God is doing. And so now we move into the 70 weeks, verses 24 through 27. Now this, this, these few verses are why some of you are glad we're in Daniel altogether, because these are hard verses, and you're like, great, now we're gonna figure it out. These are very hard verses, Probably the most difficult in Daniel, and some of the most difficult in all of the Bible. If you were to go get ten commentaries, you would have at least ten somewhat different interpretations on this passage. It's difficult. Now, I say that, we can understand the main point of it, but the difficulty is understanding exactly what does everything refer to, because we're going back into apocalyptic style genre, which we know... Everything is very symbolic there. And so we're trying to wrestle, what exactly does this mean and does this mean? But even where we might be wrong or might be unclear or we might differ, the main point becomes very, very clear. And so we'll start in verse 24. Verse 24 is probably the easiest of the verses, and it helps us understand the main point. We see in verse uh, 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, and he lists other things. So we first see there's these 70 weeks. Now, 7 is a number of completion and perfection, and the number 10 is uh, symbolic of completion. So if we have 7 times 10, we have 70, we have this perfect number, and then if this 7 times 10 uh, times 7. <laughs> So, working on it here. Um, we have 490. So, it's this perfect absolute period of time. We have 7, 10, and 7. Perfect absolute period of time. Now, we don't actually know if it's years. You probably always heard it's just 490 years. We believe it's 490 years, but we actually are not given what that actually is. It could have been days, it could have been weeks. Most likely, those aren't true because. Uh, they didn't seem long enough, Year seems to fit the best, so there's, there's difficulty understanding exactly what this time frame is, but we see what's going to happen in these 70th weeks. And by the end of the 70th week, what's going to happen? Six things. Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet. Uh, that's probably meant to be understood as fulfilling all prophecy and vision and anoint a most holy. Your Bibles might say place, but it could say one, or it could just say anoint a most holy because there's actually not clear there. And so what, what's Gabriel talking about though? Let's just get to the main point. What's Gabriel talking about? How is it that the sin's Are going to be put to an end that transgressions will be finished Uh, there'll be atonement for iniquity how does that take place it's through the cross of jesus christ right it's because jesus has come and died on a cross that transgressions have been finished there's been an end to sin iniquity for uh, atonement for iniquity has been paid everlasting righteousness has been brought in vision and prophecy has been fulfilled and anointing a most holy place between Uh, through jesus's first coming at the cross the death and resurrection combined with his return the consummation of all these things we have the fulfillment of what daniel is being told right here all coming to us because of the cross of jesus christ you see the whole bible is about god sending his son so that uh through him we could mercifully be saved Remember, God has chosen to reveal His glory by giving mercy. And God is most glorified through the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, the mercy of His Son, so that we could be saved. Look, the hope is not a temple. The hope is not to go back to the land. The hope is not a city called Jerusalem. God is something so much greater than just that. Something so much greater. He's going to send His Son, Jesus Christ, Through belief in him, one day will come a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be an everlasting temple. And that temple is the city of God, the people of God, whom he is building into a holy people for himself. Now, it's as we progress from here, things get a little bit tricky, or a lot tricky. We see that the 70 weeks is going to be broken up into three periods of time. There's seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then there's another week. And so we'll start. Verse 25, we see two of these periods. There's seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now it's believed by most that these 69 weeks combined are the time between Daniel and the coming of Christ. Is where most commentators are, are coming on board there. Um, and we read, who gives the word to restore and build Jerusalem? There's going to be a word given. And so there's some... There's actually a lot of ideas about this. Some say that it takes place 80 or 90 years later after Daniel has written this, um, or after this period of time, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which would be around uh, 458-444 B.C. That seems like it's kind of strange, waiting 80-90 years for this answer to come about. Especially when others say, and I think this is much clearer, it, it could be Cyrus, the king of Persia, who in 539 actually says that you might, you can leave. That he releases the Jews to go back and build the city. In fact, Ezra chapter one verse two says, "Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia: The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Or Isaiah 44:28 who says, Cyrus, this is God speaking, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So Cyrus seems to be this figure that God has chosen to bring about this decree where God's people will be released and go back to the building of the land or the temple and the city. I'm, others say, well, no. It's God who is the one who has decreed this, and Cyrus simply echoes this. We saw that in Jeremiah 29.10. God is the one who says, I will release my people to go out of exile, and Cyrus now echoes this. Um, I'm okay with either of those last two, really. It could be Cyrus. It could be God. I don't think it's Nehemiah or Ezra. You could believe that. I don't think that's as true, but the point is, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, and then we see after these seven weeks, there's going to be 62 more weeks. So a, a longer period of time. And in this time, we see that Jerusalem and the temple have been rebuilt. But rather than experiencing great blessing and prosperity, what do they experience? A troubled time. And we've already seen this in Daniel 7 and 8. In Daniel 7, we see that there will be state powers that will persecute God's people all throughout history. In chapter 8, we saw that there'll be great persecution by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who kind of typifies the Antichrist-type figure. What are we understanding here? You can go back to your land. You can go back to your city. You can go back to your temple. But don't put your hope there. Your hope is not in a little land in the Middle East. It's not in a temple. It's not in a city. Just because you have those things does not mean... That you're going to experience a blessing. Just because you have those things does not mean all things go well with you. You can have everything you want in this world and still go to hell, right? You have everything you want. You have houses, cars, everything. You can be in the land, be in the city that you want. You still experience suffering and persecution and death. And so we know that these things are not meant to be what gives us hope. It's not the land, it's not Jerusalem, it's not a temple. And then we go into verse 26. After 62, after the 62, and it says, and after these 62 weeks, and of course, before the 62 weeks came the seven weeks, so after 69 weeks, which now leads us into the last week, the 70th week, we're now going to see what happens here. Um, now, there's, there's a lot of thought here. There's a lot what happens here. Again, you get different commentaries, you're all going to read different things, um, it's best to understand these, uh, these numbers figuratively, because that's what we do when we come to apocalyptic literature. If you tried to press this 490 years into a literal time frame, that's where we begin trying to match history up with different things. And we try to get a chart out, and we try to figure out exactly where everything comes in. I don't believe that's healthy. And you'll probably skew the text in order to make that happen. Um, there's a gap theory that's out there because if you do that, the reason is if you do that, you're left with this last week. And, and people who try to line up detailed time with a certain time frame, then they believe that there's a gap between the 70th week and the other 69 weeks. And this gap so far, what they would say, has lasted over 2,000 years. Now, this is, a, this is a theory that's been put forth. It's been quite popular. Um, it's popularized by the Left Behind series books. Anyone ever read those books? I read all those books. I read them like the Bible. Um, basically, what those books say is, well, there's 69 weeks, and then there's going to be this large gap, and then sometime in the future, there's going to be a literal seven years because we have to have another week uh, another seven years and there'll be a little seven years where God's people will be taken out so there'll be no more Christians in the world and then there'll be an antichrist figure who makes a covenant with Israel but halfway through he'll break that covenant and then he'll bring out war and there'll be suffering all on the earth. Has anyone ever heard of that view? It's very popular. Most likely have heard it. I grew up hearing it. There's um, a lot of difficulty in staying with the text um, because to have that view, you have to put this 2,000-plus-year gap in between the 69th week and 70th week. But it seems to make more sense um, understanding the 70th week like we understand the 62 weeks came right after the first seven weeks. I know this is getting confusing, right? We just keep saying week. But if we believe the 62 weeks comes right after the seven weeks, the, the, first, the first ones, then it might as well believe that the last week comes right after the, the previous 69 without some gap that's not seemingly said in the Scripture but seems to be read in there. So some of you you are tracking, some of you are going, oh, this is great. i got no idea what's happening. That's okay. Um, but what we see is that there's going to be an anointed one who's going to be cut off. So who's the anointed one that gets cut off? Surely it's Jesus, right? Surely we're referring to To Jesus Christ now he's how is he cut off at the cross he goes to the cross where he dies he's killed so that those who believe in him would have eternal life and so if we believe that Jesus is the one cut off who are the people of the prince that now destroy the city and the temple well the gap theory one that says it's 2,000 plus years later believe it's simply the end-time Antichrist some say it's Jesus That Jesus is the one who brings about the destruction of the city and the temple. It's because of his death and resurrection. We no longer uh, need the temple, and so some have voiced that. Others, and I think this is probably the best way to see it, they say it's Titus, who in AD 70 came and actually destroyed the city and the temple. Um, So that seems to fit. That's also what Jesus says in Matthew 24, that the end of the time will come when the abomination of desolation, referring to Titus, uh, destroys the temple. Regardless of our answer, what we see is that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's not the hope what's the hope? Jesus is the hope. That's who we hope in. So regardless of where you want to land, and it's okay if we can be a little different here, but the point is Jesus Christ is the one, and that's where we come and we receive the mercy of God. Then we come to verse 27, and we read that there's going to be one who makes a strong covenant. Well, who is this that makes a strong covenant? Some people would say the gap theory that's the Antichrist but that seems like a really big stretch because who makes a strong covenant in the Bible? You know this. Who makes the strong covenant? God through His Son Jesus Christ. What, what do we do every week? We take communion and we celebrate what? The new covenant of Jesus Christ. That there is a new covenant. That now through the blood of Jesus we come to God and we can confess our sins and we know for a matter of fact that if we do that we receive His forgiveness. Because Why? Because God has promised He would do that and He's faithful to what He said He would do, right? So we come and the new covenant is surely Jesus Christ who through His blood and death and resurrection has established it so that we might have mercy. We read that there's a desolator. Surely that's referring again to Titus in AD 70. Most likely typifying the Antichrist who will come at the end of time. And it's hard This passage is hard. There's a lot of variations there. Um, But let's just turn back. What's Daniel asking? He's asking for God, turn away your wrath and give us mercy. What's the answer? Yes. Yes, you're going to have mercy. I'm going to go ahead and bring you back to the land now. And I know it's not going to go perfect. There's still going to be a lot of difficulty. But I can give you mercy. Why? Because I'm sending my son, Jesus. And because I'm sending him, I can give mercy. I can send him to be the atonement for your sins, to, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophecy, and to anoint a most holy place. God can, can do all those things for us because of his son, Jesus Christ. We have mercy. There is hope because of his son, Jesus. And so my question to us today is, how will you respond to God's word? What do you think? how we respond many of you are christians some of you might not be but will you believe in jesus today will you respond in faith to his word or will you reject him will you repent of your idols and like if we're christians you might be here today and you might go man which i do think that there's things i've been serving more than i've been serving god will you repent of living for those things and for your kingdom and will you trust in jesus Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If that's true, there's no other way. You might say, but I'm a good person. It doesn't matter. There's no other way. You might say, well, I don't believe that. Well, just because someone doesn't believe in gravity and jumps off a cliff, if the truth is there, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, right? You're going to fall. And if this is true, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life, whether we believe it or not, it's true. And so the question is, will we believe it today? Will we trust in Jesus? John in 3.36 says, or Jesus in John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. I want to just, just men, real quick. I mean, this applies to everyone. But just last night and this morning, just kind of praying. I feel like men, I just want to speak directly to you. Um, will, will you trust in Jesus? I want you to think about this. Men, will you trust in Jesus? Will you live for Jesus, the one who has come and given mercy so that through his death and resurrection we could have life? Will you live for him? Will you trust in him? And if so, will you shepherd your family that way? Because there's nothing greater than shepherding them in the truth of Jesus Christ. You can provide a house and a cars and money and vacation and all those are good things. I like all those things. But will you shepherd them in the most important thing, the truth of Jesus Christ? Because we can have all those things. We can have our temple. We can have our city. We can have our land. But those aren't going to save us, and those will pass because there's a new city. There's a new land, and all of that is much greater than anything here on this earth and only comes through jesus christ so men will you trust in jesus and if so then will then you shepherd your family in jesus will you help them to understand the truth of god's word will you shepherd your wives Will you shepherd your children will you be a good example to them i don't mean perfect repenting is being a good example too men repentance is a good example to men to our children and to our families Wives, I, I could say basically all those same things to you, maybe slightly word changes. Just especially men. We need godly men standing up in our culture today. We need that. So I encourage you to trust in Scripture and to live it out. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have the men come forward, and we're going to pass out the new covenant communion. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. God, thank you for letting us get through this chapter. And God, I pray that where I might be wrong on, on the different parts of Daniel 9 at the end, that God, you give grace, you give mercy, you give understanding. And that the clear thing is, is we know that your son, Jesus Christ, is the mercy that we need. And God, I pray that every single one in here is trusted in Jesus, knows Jesus, has believed in him. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, may you bless this time as we take communion and as we close in songs of worship to you. In your name, Jesus, amen.